Once, when I was 13 or 14 years old, Dad called me into his room for a chat. I must have done something that prompted the conversation, but I don't remember what it was. But he used phrases so concise and vivid that I can remember them word for word nearly 65 years later. You can have a serious life or a non-serious life, Teddy. I'll still love you whichever choice you make. But if you decide to have a non-serious life, I won't have much time for you. You make up your mind. There are too many children here who are doing things that are interesting for me to do much with you. I went back to my room with his words replaying in my mind. It didn't take me long to decide which kind of life I wanted to lead. Welcome to Blood and Business. I'm Bethany. And I'm Cassie. Today we're telling a story of siblings born and bred to run the world. They were the most infamous family of the 20th century. Their story drips with conspiracy. Their names whispered through the decades since they left their voices echoing in time and space. Their hands helped mold the America we know sharing with their country dreams of landing on the moon, freedom for every man. And by example, they inspired generations to reach the highest heights. They played with fire, and only a few survived. Their words ring through our history books, their pretty faces on our television screens, and their signature will forever be stamped on our national identity. They stood in the trenches. We stood beside them. They flashed their diamonds. We flashed our cameras. They had their fun, and we saluted them. They were good. They were evil. They were human. They are the Kennedy siblings. Rose and Joe knew almost nothing of the Ted Kennedy, who in April flying back from a trip to Alaska as chairman of the Special Subcommittee on Education, had gotten drunk. Reporters heard him muttering, they're going to shoot my ass off the way they shot Bobby. They knew almost nothing of the tattered marriage between Ted and Joan, and how the previous Christmas, one of Ted's closest friends had confronted the couple with their destructive behavior. Joan and her drinking, Ted and his other women. But as of July 19th, 1969, three days before Rose's 79th birthday, they would no longer have the luxury of ignorance. All of the remaining Kennedy siblings descended upon Hyannisport from wherever in the world they were that day. Sarge and Eunice flew in from Paris where they were serving as ambassador. Pat and Peter rushed across the country from California. Jean and Stephen got on the next flight from a vacation in Spain, Jackie from Greece, and Ethel arrived first. She had been at a Special Olympics event where she had spoken in Connecticut that morning. As soon as Eunice burst through the door at her parents' house, she frantically asked, Where is Teddy? Where's my brother? Rose wanted to talk to him too, but she knew better than to open her mouth, or ask Teddy to open his, rather, 
while there were so many advisors, non-Kennedys, swarming the place, loyal and trusted as they were. When Ted had arrived that day, he had gone in the house and straight to his father's room. He told him there was an accident and a woman was dead. On February 22nd, 1932, Joe and Rose Kennedy welcomed their ninth and final child, Edward Moore Kennedy, into the world. Rose was 41 and Joe Sr. was 43 when Teddy was born and Rose spent the next month in bed. Joe Jr. was almost 17 and well into his education at Choate, along with Jack, who was 15. It was definitely a different Kennedy world that Teddy grew up in as opposed to Jack and Joe Jr. Also, if Edward Moore sounds familiar to you, that's because in the Rosemary episodes, we talked a lot about the Moores and Edward Moore was Rosemary and Teddy's godfather. Oh, they were the ones in the Rosemary KFM that we figured out that when he told... Eunice, I think. I think she told Eunice when he died. Oh, or, right, right, or right, it's right, vice right. versa. No, I think you're right. He died, and the wife was one of the only people who knew what actually happened to Rosemary. Confessed it to Eunice, and that's how Eunice found out over a decade later about the lobotomy and where Rosemary was. Chills. Quote: Little Teddy, the last born, was as much a part of this drama. Even if his big brothers treated him at times like a puppy, they could either ignore, coddle, or tease until it barked. Lawrence Lemer. Even Jean, the closest in age and in friendship to Teddy, was four years older. That's a pretty big difference. He's definitely the baby of the baby the of the baby. baby. One day, at six years old, without telling anybody, Teddy walked home from kindergarten by himself. <laughs> He didn't want to be left behind or looked down on. He wanted to be a big kid like his siblings. Sounds like Gene. In fact, if any of his older siblings had done the same, they probably would have just been sternly corrected. But because Charles Lindenberg's baby had just been kidnapped and murdered a few days before Teddy was born, Rose was terrified to do it. (laughs) Quote, I think she used a hairbrush to spank me, Ted remembers. Rose even reached out to Life magazine author Henry Luce for writing about the Kennedys' opulent wealth and pointing a big neon arrow at her children ripe for the kidnapping. And if you don't know about the Lindenberg kidnapping, I didn't either. But a quick Wikipedia search says on March 1st, 1932, Charles Augustus Lindenberg Jr., the 20-month-old son of aviators Charles Lindenberg and Anne Murrow Lindenberg, was abducted from his crib in the upper floor of the Lindenberg's home in New Jersey. So pretty close to home. Yeah, and I think it was for ransom. A search of the premises was immediately made and a ransom note demanding $50,000 was found on the nursery windowsill. Mm -hmm. So that's why Rose was so terrified about it because... They're basically just saying, hey, look, there's tons of kids. She can't keep eyes on all of them, and they've got lots of money. Lots of money. He also remembered of his mom. Probably three times a week, she'd read us a Peter Rabbit or a certain Burgess story. Jean and I would go up to her room, and she'd read that. At the end of that, I'd go down and go to bed, and a few minutes, she'd come down and kiss me goodnight. Oof, quite different than Jack's memories. On Teddy's first day of school, quote, He arrived in short pants, 
a pudgy, freckled-faced little Lord Fauntleroy led up the driveway by his impeccably attired father. Uh, yes, that is a perfect description of what Ted Kennedy <laughs> looked like. <laughs> Poor kid. Again, having a very different experience than Joe Jr. and Jack, by the time Ted got to school, the Kennedy family was about as stationary as a subway train. Like with Bobby, after Brookline and England and all the places his parents needed to be, Ted ended up at no less than 10 boarding schools. That was hard to take. Ted thought back to his childhood. I can't remember all those schools. I mean, at that age, you just go with the punches. Often, he didn't even stay at one school for the whole year. Ted also remembered that he was rarely at a school long enough to not have to think about where the gym or his dorm was. And if you just think about that for a second, that that is your entire childhood, it's not just that he's going to new schools. He's literally living there. So he's not getting to go home, see his siblings, see his parents, tell them about it. There's also no cell phones. So he's completely isolated. It's not like you survive your eight-hour school day and then you get to go home and relax. Yeah. No, it's... I mean, I would be so homesick. Cassie, literally, we she changed schools because we moved uh-huh. when Cassie was going into fifth grade and she got an ulcer from it because she was so stressed out and sad. It's scary. Yeah, it is. It's a lot because none of these people know who you are and you have to like Re- reinvent yourself, reinvent retell yourself. them who you are every, every time. single time. And you almost have to either go in wanting to be a fly on the wall, wanting to not be seen or heard or needing to like make a name for yourself very quickly. So you have to be a pretty loud, exaggerated version of yourself. I went with the latter. I went with the tough tomboy. (laughs) (laughs) Cassie was doing arm wrestling matches with the boys in fifth grade. (laughs) No, but in all seriousness, it really had to have shaped who he ended up becoming and how he saw himself because to start over again and again and again is a lot. And another stark contrast to Jack's childhood, quote, And when I went there, I got whooping cough and pneumonia, and I was very, very sick. I was in the hospital for about four or five weeks and missed a central part of the year. Mother just canceled all of her plans, and just she and I went up to Cape Cod and spent the better part of three and a half months up there. I almost died. And then they said I would need a good deal of rest and attention. So when I first went up there, I was in bed, and it was really sort of the two of us. Someone came in and cleaned up. And mother would cook breakfast and lunch and dinner and read all afternoon. And then as I got a little stronger, we went out for walks, short walks, longer walks, together. And then I had a relapse up there, actually, which she blamed herself for. And so we stayed up there. And so my father came up periodically, but she stayed there the whole time. Yeah, Jack is in the hospital getting an iron rod stuck up his butt at like 12 years old. And te- and them telling him, you are dying. Like yeah. there's no other option. The, we don't really know what's wrong with you, but something severely is wrong and your levels are showing that within a week, you're going to be dead. All you can eat is peas and corn. And all he can do is write to Lem Billings. Hey, I'm about to die. Ha <laughs> ha. And not one of his family members stayed with him. And Ted has pneumonia and has to stay at Cape Cod for stay months. Stay at Hyannisport for months, not in the hospital, being completely doted on by his mother. Ted also had no idea that Rosemary had any challenges compared to his other siblings. He just knew that he liked her better. She seemed to always be available to play. <laughs> Quote, 
I just had the feeling of a sweet older sister, who was enormously cheerful, affectionate, loving, perhaps even more so than some of the older ones. She always seemed to have more time and was always more available. And then one day, when he was nine years old, his sister disappeared. And no one ever explained where she went. That is absolutely devastating. I completely forgot, but in the Mm -hmm. Rosemary episodes, he was quoted saying he thought he had better do what dad wanted for the same thing could happen to me. He literally thought that if he acted out, I think we figured this out more so in the KFMs, but because Rosemary was having behavioral issues and would throw quote unquote tantrums as a nine-year-old, that's what you're seeing them as. And he thought that if he acted the same way, one day he was also just going to disappear because he had no idea what actually happened to her. Teddy was always a marvelous athlete, aside from running, but a sloppy student. Always trying to keep up on his chubby little legs. What was that, episode five? I think so. Marlene Dietrich's, Dietrich's daughter said that. Uh-huh. She also said, I would give an arm, a leg, or any remaining limb to be one of them. <laughs> Unlike his brothers before him, Ted struggled a lot with his studies. Instead of the resourcefulness and intellect of his father, Teddy inherited his skills from Honey Fitz. When he talked, people's eyes lit up. He was always hustling an unspoken competition to have the most page numbers listed to his name in the back of the yearbook. Teddy's Fitzgerald smile shined back in almost every club photo, and even on pages where there was no club depicted. (laughs) They were proud of him. Joe Sr., Jack, and Bobby loved nothing more than seeing him score at a Harvard football game. He always had a loud row of Kennedy men screaming his name, all slightly jealous of the star athlete life he was living that each of them had only dreamed of during their collegiate days. Why is that such a cute picture? I know. You've got and you three can just older tell brothers. Fall, and they're and all dad. wearing their like yeah. wool covered yeah, sweaters. <laughs> literally the coolest big brothers in the world. Actually. I'm also literally picturing... What is his name in The Incredibles? Not Dash. Yeah. Dash literally running, just smiling, watching his family. <laughs> you see me? You see this? Oh, it's so cute. You must have been booking. How fast do you think you were going? Yeah. <laughs> Teddy, remembering how much it meant, said this. I think Jack's most profound influence was not so much when I was a teenager or a pre-teenager but was the later years, when I was in high school and through college and the post-college years. I suppose the relationship with him was as much a friend as a brother. But there was a 14 years difference, and he was remarkably interested in all the kinds of things I was involved in. He came to the sports events when I was in school. He was interested in the subjects I took in college and the teachers I had. I think he enjoyed vicariously a lot of the things I was doing. Football in college. He could look at the light side of situations, which made things not look as grim. Take notes, older siblings. He was interested in what I was interested in. When the Kennedy family built a new gymnasium at Manhattanville College and dedicated it to his sister, Kathleen, Teddy was chosen to speak at the ceremony on behalf of the family. I did not realize this about Teddy, but apparently he was a really good natural speaker because they had 
how many other options? <laughs> yeah. And the whole Kennedy family was there at the event. Right. It was just Teddy that they chose to, to do speak. the speaking. He's almost a mini Joe Jr. Because, mm-hmm. well, first of all, they looked the most alike out of everyone. For sure. And they have a similar Enneagram type. I think that yes, they both- were both an Enneagram three, probably. Yeah. Three wing two. Yeah. Because- So the exact Enneagram. Yeah. And Joe Jr. was the most, most athletic, especially compared to mm-hmm. Jack and Bobby. It was the Fitzgerald physique. Mm-hmm. And then- Joe Jr. was the natural politician as well. Jack mm-hmm. had to like really struggle to engage and be social. Right. And Joe Jr. Carve away at himself. Yep. And Joe Jr. was a natural. That really is fascinating though, comparing all four boys because it's Joe Jr. Yeah. And Teddy are the end caps and they're so similar. And then Bobby and Jack were the ones who like struggled. They were so similar well, and completely different. Yeah. So Joe Jr. and Teddy, the natural politicians. And Jean was a natural matchmaker. At least she tried to be. (laughs) Operation Bethel. And so at that gymnasium dedication, Jean ran into a student she knew named Joan Bennett. And knowing that she was Catholic, responsible, and beautiful, said, I want you to meet my little brother. And rushed her directly over to her one and only last single brother. On that day at Manhattanville, Joan was about the only girl on campus who was not interested in the Kennedy's appearance and thus had missed Ted's speech. Quote, I had never heard of the Kennedys, Joan recalled. I had never heard of them. I just took no interest in current events. I didn't know what was going on in the real world. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like Bethany. But after her friend, Margot Murray, rushed back to their dorm and told her, Teddy's here and you've got to meet him. She figured what would be the harm. What you need to know about Joan is that she was unusually beautiful. A successful model, in fact. And she was markedly naive. We knew what happened to animals. We just didn't associate it with human beings. Okay, she wasn't that bad, but <laughs> yeah, she was pretty conservative. And actually, I think it was a bit of a survival mechanism. Both of her parents were heavy drinkers, and her mom actually had a full-blown alcohol addiction, which meant that Joan and her only sibling, a younger sister named Candy, were the recipients of emotional and verbal abuse. Think the criticism of Janet Autrincloss, but from a mom with an alcohol problem never speaking of her own flaws, and always making sure you were acutely aware of yours. So for Joan, if she didn't open her eyes, she couldn't see the bad things. Like Janet, Joan's mother was also high society. And Joan, of course, like Jackie, had been to all the right schools. She was a debutante and attended mass daily. When she finally saw who Ted Kennedy was, she remembered that she thought he was a, quote, darn good-looking fellow. So when he kind of hinted at the fact that he needed to ride to the airport, Joan jumped at the opportunity, <laughs> which Ted Kennedy does not need a freaking ride to the I airport. I know, I was literally just thinking about that. <laughs> she told him that she and her friend Marco may just be available, never mind the fact that they could be expelled for leaving campus. 
these are the exact same roles that Gina and Ethel had to mastermind their way out mm-hmm. of. Remember, at Manhattanville. Yep, at the exact school. Remember the incinerator incident? Gene grabbed the Book of Marks and tossed, tossed it. it. <laughs> and also, funnily enough, this is a pretty deep cut, but remember mm-hmm. in episode one, I think it was? Straight up. Honey Fitz literally used another Sacred Heart sister school in Europe to separate or try and separate Rose and Joe. So who all went here? I think Rose went to the Manhattanville location first mm-hmm. before transferring. Kick went to Manhattanville for a moment. Pat masterminded her way out of the whole boarding school situation. Don't and think that Eunice did either because- she ended up going, Yes, no, I think Eunice did. She did? Go to I Manhattanville. She went in California because that's after Rosemary. She transferred her. Yes, you're right. She yes. started at Manhattanville. at Manhattanville. And then, yeah, got transferred because she thought the scenery would. So Eunice went there. Pat mm-hmm. did not. And then Jean as well. And Ethel. So, so many Kennedys. That's why they- dedicated to gymnasium because they were like you raised us <laughs> yeah thank you Manhattanville thank the god nuns. for the Ursula, the sound yeah. grammar of the Ursuline nuns when Ted got out of the car at the airport he asked Joan may I call you yes she said and then Ted boarded his plane unaware of the fact that he had just played perfectly into the hands of Jean and Joan they were masterminds the whole time Ted called the next evening and a few phone calls later asked her out for a date during her Thanksgiving break. She actually already had a date with someone else that evening, so Ted settled for brunch after mass on Sunday. She was back at home for a break and her parents would not allow her to ride the train to New York alone, so Ted drove out to Bronxville to pick her up. Quote, He liked her a lot, remembered Lem Bellings. Uh, finally, he returns. I've missed him. I know. He's here the entire time, so don't forget about him. He's still on scene, but I think he excluded himself from a lot of Jack's drama, and that's all we've been covering, so. I very much like to be excluded from this. Yeah, exactly. Ted said to me, she's so relentlessly cheery. Nothing gets her down. Nothing, I asked. Nothing, he answered. She's perfect for my family. Joan had noticed several red flags in Teddy as they went on their first few dates, and she chose to close her eyes. She'd heard about Cadillac Eddie and noted that he hadn't shown her that side of himself. After she graduated that year in 1958, Ted invited her to meet Rose and spend the weekend at Hyannisport. This was a big move because Rose had made it explicitly clear that if Ted chose, quote, the wrong kind of girl, we'll all suffer. And had been praying a nightly rosary that little Teddy would bring home the perfect Kennedy wife. Not to mention, he's like over a decade younger than everyone else. I know. I don't understand why they were so ready for him to get married when Jack waited until he was... What, like 36? almost 40, yeah. yeah. Allegedly, the way that Ted had described Joan, Rose wasn't too excited or impressed. Much to her delight, he way undersold her. She asked me about Bronxville, Manhattanville, the nuns, Joan remembered. But mostly we talked about music. Rose played the piano very well and she asked me to play. 
I had given a big recital in order to graduate, and I played some of that music, some Brahms. She played a Chopin for me. There was something that first week I met her that really connected. There was so much in common. Joan was also more willing to read the room and match the vibes than Jackie. She also brought a suitcase of nice dresses for her weekend at the Cape, but once she looked around and realized what was appropriate was much more casual, she didn't even take the formal dresses out. Jackie showed up in a ball gown to the Kennedy family dinner table. I can't believe our luck, Rose exclaimed to Eunice after Joan left the Cape. She grew up in Bronxville. Rose still called around to make sure, but she received only glowing reports about Joan. Joan didn't reveal problems, which to Rose was absolutely the right thing to do. She's not a whiner, Rose remarked of Joan later. My brother didn't complain, so what's to complain? We've had tragedy in our own lives, you know. It's a great life if if you you don't weaken. And also the Kennedy inheritance. The ability to not be got down. Because Kennedys never cry. Pick your <laughs> Kennedy quote. Shall we go on? Yeah. We don't want losers in this house. We want winners. <laughs> oh, I miss those episodes. I know. Joan spent three more weekends at the Cape that summer. And that September, Ted ever so romantically proposed on the beach. Kind of. What do you think of us getting married? Ted kind of awkwardly fumbled out. They were alone, taking a walk on the beach, and had run out of things to talk about. So, Ted blurted out what he could come up with. Marriage. Doesn't that make perfect sense? We have nothing to talk about. Let's spend the rest of our lives together. Logic. Okay, and at this point, how long have they been dating? He proposed in September, and they first met in October the previous year. October 1957 was the Manhattanville gymnasium dedication speech. And then they had phone calls, a couple dates. She spent four weekends during that summer at Hyannisport, and then he proposed in September. Okay. So this is like coming up on a year. Right. The fall. Well, I guess it's not such a bad idea. Joan replied. And with such a glowing response hanging in the air, Ted, quote, plopped down on the sand and asked, what do we do now? (laughs) Tell me you're the baby of the family without telling me. Absolutely. I would like to push the button. Married? Go. Okay. What next? Who's going to do what for me? (laughs) Joan met Joe Sr. that evening and then headed back to Bronxville. Quote, We didn't see each other from the time of his proposal until the engagement party, Joan reflected. Wow, so she's just now meeting Joe Sr. They've been dating for 11 months, Mm -hmm. and her and Ted have barely seen each other at all? Quote, I was young and naive then, but looking back, there were warning signals. Ted was running Jack's Senate re-election campaign at the time. Good morning, friends. Many of you. Most of you, I think, seemed to have enjoyed it. (laughs) And we, I think, slept in every city in Massachusetts. (laughs) So there is that excuse. During the week, he studied law in Virginia, and on weekends, I think, slept in every city in Massachusetts. 
But it's still a little sus. If he wanted to, he would. And just as Janet was perplexed at why Jack, just a couple months before his wedding, would go on a trip with other women without Jackie, without his fiance, Ted's demeanor was the same. After all, Joan, for months, had been engaged to the only remaining single Kennedy sibling, and yet he still had not given her a ring. What? Money's not an issue, so what are we doing? What's the holdup here? If he wanted to, he would. Teddy is not ready to get married. He showed up late to their engagement party, sneaking in the back through the maid's quarters so that he wouldn't embarrass Joan's mom, and had in his pocket the ring that Joe Sr. had given him, and get this. He hadn't even cracked the box open to look at the ring before presenting it to Joan. Joe Sr. just gives him a ring. How many months late? Like, <laughs> what do we do now? And so then... Gets on one, what, so what now? What now? Puts it in his pocket, drives to the freaking engagement party late and then doesn't even bother to look at what the ring looks like. Like He is not ready to get married. It's almost as if he shouldn't be getting married. But his family, especially Rose, who he wanted to please and wanted so badly their approval, were pushing him hard. Even though I say again, Jack was not married by this age. In fact, he had almost a decade. Yes. Eunice wasn't married by this age. Like, come Pat on. Wasn't married. I don't think he's Pat wasn't. No. Maybe Jean, but I don't think so. Teddy's like 26, 25, 26. He's married. In, he was born in 32. Oh my gosh. He is 26 years old. Nobody was married by this age. I don't think a single one of them. That has to be the youngest. Jack was, what, 38 or something? 36. 36. Sarge was 38. Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, Eunice was, was 32, I think. Pat made sure she got engaged right... Or no, it was the, it was married, right? Yeah. She got <laughs> engaged at 29, married right before her 30th birthday. Like the month before. Um, th- Why? Why does Ted need to get married? Clearly. Oh, actually, Kick. Kick is the only one. So it's almost as if because the family as a whole unit had arrived at this stage in life, they were just expecting Ted to be right there with them. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't He was 14 years younger than Jack. On top of his lack of age and maturity, Lawrence Lemer points out, Ted, like the rest of the Kennedys, was not deeply introspective. He had learned the best way to deal with intractable emotional problems or uncertainties was to run from them. The closer they came, the harder he ran. Cut to Josie Your Stroke in KFM 16 Part 2. Like mother, like son. All things considered, neither Joan nor Ted were prepared for this marriage. Both of them had been severely stunted by lives that were chosen, laid out, and operated for them by other people. 
What Ted needed in a wife at this point in his life was someone strong, sure, an individual with a solid identity who wouldn't accept moral cowardice. What Joan needed in a husband was an attentive, considerate, supportive person that would encourage her to pursue emotional growth and ownership of her life and embrace or even find her purpose. Neither of these people possessed any of these qualities. And Joan started to realize as much. It was all very weird and unnatural. The wedding was coming up quickly, and she had barely even seen Ted since the engagement party. So she gets engaged, literally doesn't see him until the engagement party, and then after the engagement party, barely sees him. Oh my gosh. And then a few friends came to her confessing that they had seen Ted with other women. Quote, You would be amazed what you learn about a man after you decide to marry him, she said later. Joan went to her dad and expressed that she was becoming increasingly unsure about marrying Ted. Oh my gosh. She literally went to her dad because she was second guessing it that that severely. Mm -hmm. Mary Lou McCarthy remembers this. Cousin Mary Lou. (laughs) Thank God for cousins. But did you really like him? Of course I liked him. He's my husband. What if married him? But I mean, like, really? Quote. Joan's father, Mr. Bennett, arranged a meeting between himself and Ted and Joe. Mr. Bennett said that his daughter had second thoughts and that they should either cancel the engagement and wedding plans or perhaps put things back a year. Joe became furious and said, They're not going to put into papers that my son is being tossed over. He forced this issue. He was God. The wedding was going to happen whether Ted or Joan like it or not. Okay, so this sounds like a full-on family meeting to where Teddy is aware, the whole family is aware, that Joan no longer really wishes to marry him, at least not yet. And yet... Joe Sr. still gets his way and everyone just goes along Listens with Listens yeah. with no questions. The two parties getting married are like, mm. And oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. That's just I did read that when they first met Joe Sr. and Joan on that night in Hyannisport, he like interviewed her. She said, and it was an interview. <laughs> and he asked, do you love my son? And so I think... Joe Sr. like vetted it at the beginning. He was like, do you guys really want this? They said yes. And then from that point, when it was published in the newspapers, your word was Bible you're done. You had to- but they're not married. They're engaged. They're not married. I told Joan, you can't cure the addicted woman chaser. And she said, I have no choice but to try, do I? What else can I do? From the beginning, she was in trouble and she seemed to know. Wait, who said that? This is Mary Lou. That's Mary Lou? So she was like talking to Joan about it. Yeah, wow. Joan said out loud, But the funny thing is that everyone thinks this is a marriage made in heaven. The thoughts of her campaign to convince herself that there was nothing ominous going on and everything would be perfectly wonderful all the time, no matter what. Both my mother and father-in-law and my parents and me and all my girlfriends and Ted's friends Everyone thinks this is a marriage that will just be perfect. 
she included herself in there. Yeah. That's so sad. She like knows that she doesn't want to do it, but I guess because of the situation that she's in with she just Senior, she's so just so pressured. Yeah. She's like trying to convince herself it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. Everyone wants, Once this, everyone thinks this is going to be perfect. It probably will be. And yet she knows. A few days before the wedding, Ted and Joan went out to dinner with one of Ted's friends. And then Ted proceeds to send Joan home in a limousine while he and his friend hit the town and go bar hopping all night without her. Ted ran into the Pakistani diplomat and known playboy, Ali Khan at one of the nightclubs. Ted didn't know him, but he knew of the legend of this guy. He knew that he used to be married to Rita Hayworth and had been divorced twice. And well, here he was out at the club. So why not share his doubts about marrying Joan and see what he thinks? The guy just looks at Ted and goes, it's too late now for advice. That is terrible advice. (laughs) What's the point of engagement? I know, that's what I'm trying to figure out. The night before the wedding, Ted again told a friend that he was afraid he was making a huge mistake. Oh my gosh. Like Jackie, Joan had wanted a small, intimate wedding. But like Jackie, Joseph P. Kennedy thought otherwise. Really, the Kennedys thought otherwise. Joan's mom had invited Ethel and Bobby to the wedding, of course, but she did not invite their children. Quote, Nonetheless, Kathleen, Joe Jr., Bobby Jr., and even two-year-old Courtney showed up at Bronxville for the ceremony. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Jackie had been through similar treatment. Jack was not marrying into the social elite of Southampton, Jackie was marrying into the Kennedys. But at least she only had extra guests and reporters swarming the place with photo cameras. Ted and Joan's wedding turned into a movie set. (laughs) They literally put photography box lights and floodlights up everywhere and filmed the entire thing. But this was not even the Kennedys. Apparently, this was a gift for the bridal couple from one of Joan's father's friends. A film crew descended upon their wedding and even placed tiny microphones in the pockets of several of the bridal party so that when they put the film together, you could hear what was going on. Well, these little tiny microphones. This is where the infamous Jack and Teddy marriage conversation comes from. After a short honeymoon, Joan decided to watch her wedding film back. It was a very candid documentary style, and she got to see the bridesmaids getting ready and everybody excited and waiting for the ceremony that day. And then it cuts to Cardinal Spellman at the front of the church. Quote, And there behind the altar, waiting for the ceremony to begin, stood Ted and Jack, his best man. Jack didn't realize that he was being recorded. 
Jack chose now to give his baby brother a lecture full of the world's greatest marriage advice. When Jack found out that it was filmed with audio, Joan said that he, quote, blushed scarlet. For, for Jack to have blushed like that, but that would have been <laughs> pretty bad. Yep. Ted adored his older brother and was prepared to do and be whatever necessary to merit Jack's praise and honor, even if it meant intending to betray his own marital vows before he had taken them. And Joan has to watch this back after she has already gotten married. Joan managed to laugh, but it was an ominously haunting moment. Here was Cardinal Spellman talking about the sacredness of the marital vows, and behind the altar, Jack giving a different sort of sermon on what marriage meant to a Kennedy man. After the wedding, the honeymoon, the drama of the wedding film, Joan was left to a quiet, quaint home full of new responsibilities, things she had never done before. Quote, I had to clean house, cook, do the laundry, and I really learned a lot, Joan reported. It was fun. For a while. On February 27th, 1960, Ted and Joan welcomed their first baby into the world, Kara. And just a year and a half later, Kara got a baby brother, Edward Jr. Then the real Kennedy life began for Joan. Athletics and politics. I'm just a flop, Joan told the family nurse, Luella Hennessy. They all do it so well. I always said that Ted should have married my sister, Candy. She was always the female athlete. She plays tennis and golf and rides beautifully, where I'm allergic to horses. For the first time, she joined everyone out on the campaign trail. First stop, Appalachia. Jack liked to have a female member of the family with him. Joan remembered of her first political outing. I think it was probably pretty smart politics to have a female member of the family standing close, right next to him, because there were a lot of other women who wanted to stand right next to him, and this looked better. What they didn't consider was taking the actual model, Joan Bennett Kennedy, into the minds of West Virginia filled with men who had spent the entire day shoveling rock in the dark. Joan started a riot. (laughs) The shouting, whistling, and shoving was so loud, Jack couldn't even deliver his speech. This was Joan's first and last time she traveled with Jack. After the election, Jack presented her with one of his signature thank you gifts, complete with an inside joke. To his baby sister-in-law, he presented a silver box with the engraving, too beautiful to use. She was useful during Ted's later campaign for the same Senate seat just a few years later. Ted banned the rest of the family from helping the campaign. He had something to prove, and so Joan was the only one allowed to help canvas the great state of Massachusetts. Well, Joan and sometimes his adored mother. We would go together or we would go separately, Joan remembered. 
Ted would go into the big cities and I would go into the small towns. That's where I learned the ropes, in the small towns. My mother-in-law campaigned with me often and she loved it. And I learned a lot from her. In 1962, while campaigning for that Senate seat that Jack had left behind, a reporter complained about there being too many Kennedys. Ted joked, you should have taken that up with my mother and father. Lawrence Lamer insists that Ted was, in fact, quote, the best instinctive politician in the Kennedy family. Ted had inherited his maternal grandfather's gift, and he took delight in the sheer game of politics. And Jack couldn't stand the niceties of it. And Bobby didn't pretend to try. (laughs) Ted had a gift for people. He was at his best, not at some deep intellectual endeavor, but in oral arguments, politicking for his brother and shaking hands, or out with his friends, lifting a few drinks and telling a few tales. Come to think of it, all of the Kennedys were kind of like that because that right there reminds me of the Maryland episodes where Pat loved to get a reaction out of people. Yeah. What is that? She liked to like shock Marilyn by saying outlandish things. But she would tell those like personal, funny Mm -hmm. family stories in front of crowds of people just to get reactions out of them. So it was like her way of Uh politicking, you know, like charming people. And they were just all that way. I love it. If this girl had been born with balls. But Ted had a little bit of a secret. Way back. In 1951, when Ted was a freshman at Harvard, Ted inherited the Kennedy charisma like no one who had gone before. Unfortunately, what was more impactful on Ted's life is what he didn't inherit. Teddy had none of Bobby's tenacity, none of Jack's vigor, nor Joe Jr.'s conviction. He did not have one family-like best friend as Jack and Bobby had. Ted, instead, was a true natural-born politician. He had many acquaintances and no one too close. In school, he mostly just didn't want to be removed from the varsity football team. And so, while at Harvard, Teddy figured he could just let one of his classmates pretend to be him and go take his Spanish exam in his place. (laughs) Teddy and Warren O'Donnell, yes, Kenny O'Donnell's younger brother, were walking across the courtyard at Harvard in the spring semester of 1951. And remember who Kenny O'Donnell is. He is the serious counterpart to Dave Powers' jester, basically a first friend. This was Ted's first year in college. So Warren asked him how he was feeling about the upcoming Spanish test. And Ted remembers telling him, quote, This is a tough one. I've got to get that C minus or I can't play football in the fall. So who knows who came up with the idea, but Teddy and Warren somehow ended up going to see another classmate who was basically a whiz kid and was on scholarship at Harvard. Oh, it breaks my freaking heart. He responded by basically saying, it would be fun to take the Spanish test. Lawrence Lemer commented that, 
For the rest of his life, Teddy would be surrounded by overly solicitous people who called themselves his friends and were ready to do what they had to do to get him what they thought he wanted. Do you think that's like the biggest difference? Teddy grew up a celebrity. Yeah. And Actually, you're right. Jack did not. I didn't even think about that. Duh. He was just a Massachusetts senator. Nobody needed to know who mm-hmm. Jack Kennedy was. Yeah. Teddy, in order to remain less morally culpable, took a back seat in the scheming and didn't say much of anything while his friends concocted the plan. Both Ted and the whiz kid were expelled for a year. He literally thought it was a great idea to let someone walk in and say, hi, I'm Ted Kennedy, and take the test. He's literally, what, the fourth Kennedy to go there? They know what you guys look like. (laughs) It wasn't only starstruck friends that catered to Teddy either, though. He was the baby. So, even his family were guilty of doing things for him. In fact... While waiting to be able to attend again, Ted, like his brothers before, joined the military. Because he only needed to divert his plan for the short term, he was supposed to enroll for only two years. However, when he got back home, Joe Sr. noticed in Teddy's documents that he had not signed up for two years, but instead for a four-year term. When I signed up for four years, it was just a matter of paper shuffling. They had three forms at the recruiting office, and I had no idea. I went down with the idea to sign up for two years. It was just an administrative type of thing. An administrative type of thing that sent his father on a marathon of effort to undo. Also, Bobby, when Ted was back at Harvard again, sent him this letter along with some of his old papers that he told Ted he could rework and use himself. (laughs) Quote, Seems a little technical, but perhaps you can water it down a bit and still be able to use it. Why does this remind me of when I was in school and literally had Cassie write probably every essay I ever turned in? (laughs) And one time I even, normally I would like sit next to her and kind of like tell her what to write. Yeah. And then one time I literally was like, I cannot keep my eyes open. So Cassie pulled an all-nighter, wrote the entire thing for me. I woke up the next day with it. And went to high school. Yeah. This was definitely high school and not college, by the way. Right. It's just the role of a big brother or sister. So back to Ted. This is after he has already been expelled from the exact same school for cheating. And they're like, this is a good idea. Let's just do it again. But lack of consequences. It doesn't really hurt him that badly, you know? Or at all. (laughs) Or at all. No lessons learned. Zero. Teddy had a tendency from quite early on not to take any responsibility. Remember Bobby jumping up and practically running to the front of the church to be the altar boy? Hence the nickname Altar Boy Bobby. Well, Teddy had his own experience being an altar boy, and he wrote his parents about his experience helping the priest. Quote, This morning I served Mass with a boy that said he knew how. The boy kicked the bell over and stood and knelt at the wrong times. After Mass, we were practically chased out of the church. But even after I told the priest I didn't even know the fellow, he mumbled that he would rather have no one serve than me. 
This was a definite blow to my pride. (laughs) He did have a sweet, considerate streak too, though. When Teddy and his friend Claude Hooten Jr. were taking girls to a big dance that evening, Claude barely made it home to shower after a rugby game before he had to rush over to pick Ted up at his dorm. When Ted got in the car, he was carrying not one, but two corsages. One for his date and one for his friend to present to his date. Teddy could drink more beer than any of his buddies and still be up at dawn for a sale or a tennis game while his friends lay in bed, pillows over their heads, trying to quell their throbbing hangovers. This is how little Teddy earned the name Cadillac Eddie. Well, that and the time he tried to outrun the police and when they caught up to him, he was parked and laying back in the driver's seat trying to hide. I mean, that's just how embarrassing. Oh, and Bobby let him know that on more than one occasion. He stated just that in a letter from January of 1955. Quote, I talked to dad last night and he agreed with me that you really made a fool of yourself New Year's Eve. Allegedly. So that this cheating story, the Harvard and the Spanish and the whiz kid, So that this wasn't harmful to Ted's upcoming election, the Kennedys decided to leak the story themselves. Jack, while president, invited a Globe reporter to the White House where he personally handed over a file on Ted's Harvard situation. It's stuff like that that blows my mind that that is what the president is handling. Not normally. (laughs) And what year is it? Um, This is for Ted's 1962 uh, election campaign, I think, for the Senate. Joe Sr. has already had his stroke, so that's probably why Jack's Mm -hmm. the one handling it. Because I'm like, well, where's Joe Sr.? Yeah. But before Jack handed it over, he requested that the reporter would downplay the story by including it in a biographical article rather than running that story as the highlight. They insisted on making it a front-page story, but they hid the scandalous part in the fifth paragraph of an article titled, Ted Kennedy Tells About Harvard Examination Incident. They could have said expulsion. They could have said all kinds of other things. Mm -hmm. Examination Mm -hmm. incident. (laughs) The story blew over very mildly, and other newspapers reported on it, but since the Globe was the lead on the story and they didn't make a big deal about it, Neither did anyone else. Kennedy rule number four, address the elephant in the room. That feels like a different season almost, but that was the Kennedys. That was act two. Oh yeah, episode 10. Mm -hmm. Get ahead of the scandal. You dictate the narrative. They will absolutely forgive you for this. In March, 1962, Ted announced that he was officially running for Senate. They had gotten ahead of it. They released the story prior to anyone knowing that he was a candidate. So in their minds, it was just a story about the youngest snot-nosed Kennedy kid cheating at Harvard. Not our new Senate elect having a history of being blatantly dishonest. Wow. Very different headlines. Mm -hmm. After Ted was elected as the new senator for Massachusetts, Jackie told her baby sister-in-law, 
Live in town if you want to see very much of your husband. They did. Just that. Rented a place in Georgetown. And Joan got herself her very first maid and cook and never had to do a chore ever again. Well, that was short-lived. It was fun. For a while. (laughs) When Joan was inducted into the world of Washington, she was about a generation younger than everyone else in the room. Wow, yeah. Jackie was young. Joan is a baby. Ted is a baby. So much so that Joan was now the youngest senator wife to the youngest senator in the United States. It was pretty obvious, even to Ted himself, that a large part of why he was in office was his last name. So, even though he'd accomplished quite a bit already, he wasn't done proving his worth. Considering this and considering his college reputation, Ted decided it was probably best if his presence was missed at most of the Washington parties. Sounds like wisdom. (laughs) The trouble was that instead of attending that evening's social event, he spent his nights at the Senate office, leaving Joan home alone with the kids most nights. Joan didn't have any friends her age in D.C. She wasn't near her family, nor Ted's. She couldn't hang out at the White House every night. So, she drank. I'm fine when I'm busy, but when I'm alone, well, then it's often not so good. The darkness sets in. Joan reflected. Before I confronted my alcoholism as a disease, I had withdrawn into myself. Because I looked pretty, people kept telling me that I had everything. A fantastic husband, terrific kids, talent at the piano, brains. They didn't see how much I was hurting inside. Being a senator's wife and a Kennedy didn't help me. Many of my women friends later told me that they didn't call me because I seemed unapproachable. So being painted as perfect and pretending everything was terrific was a terrible burden. Because everything was, in fact, not perfect. The night of Jack and Jackie's first public party, January 29th, 1961. Oh, no. That night, Jackie had arranged for a full bar to be set up in the family dining room in the West Wing and another in the East Wing which was not according to tradition. The Eisenhowers, in the previous administration, quote, just spiked the fruit punch and hoped for the best. (laughs) (laughs) But not Jack and Jackie. They went for the awe and wonder. The Gatsby effect. The Kennedys, they knew how to throw a party. They had style. (laughs) Ted seemed to have spent an awful lot of time at the East Wing bar a reporter and attendant of said party, passed along. That night, Joan was wearing a stunning pink asymmetrical gown and had her blonde hair pulled back in a sleek chignon. When Jackie saw her, she exclaimed, Oh my God, Joan, just look at you. You look fantastic in that color. 
That's your color, Joan. Pink. Always wear pink. Joan was basking in the glow of Jackie's compliment when a grenade landed in the middle of the conversation. Lobbed from the outside, from over Jackie's shoulder. Oh, yeah? Well, you should have seen her when she woke up this morning, said a male voice. It was Ted, recalled the reporter. Just a little drunk and a lot mean. He was holding his dessert in one hand and spooning it out with the other. Chantilly. Raspberries with whipped cream. He had a smug look on his face. Jackie started to say something, but then thought better, turned on her heels, and marched away. Not ten minutes later, a campaign worker came up to Joan and complimented her hair. Why, thank you, Joan said cheerfully. I just thought I'd try something a little different, you know? You want to see different? Ted butted in. You ought to see her hair when she wakes up in the morning. It's not so pretty, he said, chuckling. Joan was blinking away tears when Ethel rushed over to her side. She had just happened to overhear her brother-in-law. What's the matter with you? This is your wife. How dare you insult her? Here, of all places. Now leave her alone, you big brute. (laughs) Ethel grabbed Joan's hand and said, Come on, I have someone I want you to meet. Leaving Ted standing alone with his Chantilly. If that's what he's like in In public? public? Despite Ted's efforts to portray a perfectly capable legislator, responsible with a happy family backing him, little Teddy, Cadillac Eddie, always slipped out. Once, while traveling in Europe without Joan, Ted was invited to the home of the American ambassador to Belgium. Ted showed up to the historic home for a dinner in honor of the king and queen, drunk with a sex worker on his arm. Oh, but it gets worse. Embarrassed, the hostess tried to keep Ted's date out of sight from the king and queen because the relationship between her and Ted was quite obvious. So, she showed Ted and his date to a bedroom. Ted's date was so drunk that while making out with him, she peed all over an antique couch. The details of this event made their way all the way back to Capitol Hill. And not Ted, but Joan sent an apology to the ambassador couple. Joan loved him, though. He was her first love, in fact, and the father of her three children. They welcomed baby Patrick in 1967. Quote, Our good times together were so good. Joan reflected years later. People look at a relationship from the outside and feel they can be judgmental about it. The little moments, the times that are shared with each other. Were not witnessed by outsiders but they were the moments that meant the most and the things that kept them together. That's why it makes me so mad when people say, oh, how could you stay with him? What do they know? How dare they? Joan's lonely nights didn't let up, though. I'm going stir-crazy. I can only listen to Bach for so many hours. Ted, more nights than not, would walk through the door 
hours after the kids had gone to bed, and his routine sounded like a repetitive trauma to Joan. Listening from the bedroom, where she would always be laying in the dark. Ted would walk in the house and head straight for the fridge. Joan knew, like no one else, what this meant. It was like an evil secret language, letting her know that her husband had just had sex. After a few seconds, allowing Ted to find whatever leftovers there were from the family dinner he had missed, the fridge would slam shut again. On too many nights, this was Joan's haunted lullaby. And it drove her further into her family inheritance. Alcoholism. And just when she thought things couldn't get worse, they always did. Due to the events that will be replayed next in our Kennedy Siblings episode... In 1964, the Kennedy family was not doing well. Everything was surreal. Everyone's eyes were bloodshot, every mind in bewilderment, every heart aching. When, on Saturday, June 20th, 1964, at one o'clock in the morning, Joan was startled out of her sleep by a pounding at the door. She thought, It must just be a bad dream, but it wasn't. When she opened the door, her chauffeur, Jack Crimmins, was really standing in front of her. Joan, I don't know how to say this to you, he told her. Maybe you should sit down. This cannot be happening, Joan thought. It just can't. Please, just tell me. Tell me now. There's been an accident, he remembers telling her. Oh, no. Who? Ted. Oh my God, not Ted too. I'm sorry, Joan. Ted's plane went down. Somewhere near Springfield. Not another nightmare. Please, God. Joan was staying with Alan and Anne Biardi because she had traveled to watch Ted accept the nomination at the Massachusetts State Democratic Convention. Ted was going to meet her the next day because he wanted to stay back in D.C., just one more day, though he would miss some of the festivities because something very important was happening in Congress. The Senate was voting on a certain civil rights bill. It was important to Ted to see that happen, and he had seen it, then gotten on a plane and crashed on the way to Joan. He was not expected to live through the night. When Joan arrived at the emergency room, what she saw horrified her. Her husband was laying inside an oxygen tent and a bag of someone else's blood was flowing into his veins, trying to spare his life. Joanie, he said, I'm okay. I'll be fine. Before drifting to sleep. His back was broken in three places He couldn't feel anything below the waist. His left lung had collapsed. He had broken two ribs and his blood pressure was dangerously low. If he did survive, the doctors told Joan, he would be a paraplegic. Ted's plane had hit the earth 
its wings ripped off on impact, sending the aircraft rolling until the roof had been shredded to nothing. When it crashed, Ted had been standing behind the pilot, trying to figure out how to help. His body ricocheted around the cabin on impact, and the pilot was killed instantly. Oh my gosh, I had not thought about this before, but he literally knows exactly what kick went through right before she died. He literally lived through it up. I'm crying. I had thought, oh my gosh, they were both in plane crashes. I didn't think about that. Because they're both like, it's the exact same scenario. Exact. Now I'm crying. (laughs) Can you imagine? A year, not even a year after you've lost your brother. That is so traumatizing. Yeah. A lot stacks up right here. Oh my gosh. I'm sweating. That's a lot. Ted's aide, Ed Moss, underwent brain surgery before dying just seven hours after the crash. And two other passengers were miraculously unharmed. Bobby got to the hospital at 4 a.m. Joan was sleeping, so he waited until she woke to begin a vigil at Ted's bedside. That afternoon, the rest of the family began trickling in. Once Eunice, Pat, and Jean were there to sit with Joan, Bobby held a press conference. Afterward, Bobby told columnist Jimmy Breslin, quote, I was just thinking, if my mother hadn't had any more children after the first four, she would have nothing now. I guess the only reason we've survived is that there are more of us than there is trouble. When Jackie arrived at the hospital, she asked Pat immediately, Where's Joan? I have to see her. She rushed into Ted's room and threw her arms around Joan before leading her out into the hallway as the nurses and doctors looked on. Thank God he's alive, Jackie told her sister-in-law. We just have to thank God he's alive. It's a curse. The nurses remember Joan crying. I know now that it's a curse. That night, Ted's condition finally began to stabilize. Rose was in the chapel, on her knees at the altar, when Jackie went in to join her. After a few minutes, Eunice, Jean, and Pat found them and fell down on either side. The Kennedy wives, the Kennedy sisters, they knew each other's pain. And now, kneeling before God, they were each other's strength. Together, the five women prayed in silence. When this happened, Ted was just being selected as the Democratic candidate from Massachusetts. And now, he still had to campaign as such and win the election over the Republican candidate. Obviously, at the moment, he wasn't up for traveling. Joan became the candidate herself, remembers cousin Joe Gargan. She made up her mind to do all that she could to help him recover physically and to win the re-election. 
and she did. She set up a makeshift office at the hospital and would go out each day, meeting with people, speaking, shaking hands, and then going back to the hospital each evening to give her husband a debrief. She was amazing. Everyone loved Joan. And of course, Ted Kennedy won the Senate election. The cost, however, campaigning was a lot. And for Joan, more stress meant more alcohol. One of the most anxiety-inducing things of Joan's daily tasks was answering questions about her marriage. She felt like a liar every time she had to pretend that they were happy. When she went to the hospital each evening to report to Ted what she had done that day and how it was all going, he barely paid attention to her at all. At the end of the election, it seemed like everyone but Ted recognized what Joan had done. Bobby told his little brother, quote, Joan won the election for you. Jackie sent Joan a note of congratulation. Not Ted. Congratulations, she wrote. And a job well done. How wonderful. I hope this shows you how much you can accomplish. I am so excited for you. Where was that big sis Jackie with Lee? I know. It's in there, but what the heck happened? Rose sent her daughter-in-law two dozen roses and a letter. Ted simply told a reporter that he would have won the election anyway. Joan's backbreaking work was just, quote, icing on a cake I had baked myself. Meanwhile, Jack is like, I think it appropriate to introduce myself. I'm the man who has accompanied Jacqueline Kennedy to Paris, and I have enjoyed it. Ah, see, that's the difference. And then Bobby says, Ethel was the best decision he ever made. And then there's Ted. And after months of putting herself through hell to save her husband's career, when he was well enough to spend the night in a bed other than the one at the hospital, he didn't choose Jones. He found joy in a dance at the celebrated Totem Pole, a large dance hall outside Boston. He took pleasure in buying a boat and paying for it with money he had earned and delight in sitting around with his friends or family. Of all the siblings, he had the greatest prospect of a life full of what most people call happiness. Lawrence Lemer. In the summer of 1968, the Kennedy family took yet another devastating blow. They lost Bobby. This was catastrophic for everyone. In the aftermath of losing Jack, Bobby had pushed himself to try as best as he could to fill the void in the way that Jack had done after losing his big brother. And though, like when they lost Joe Jr., Jack couldn't cover the loss, he did do a pretty good job at filling the empty space. Bobby did the same. When they lost their president, 
Bobby became the candidate. When Jackie didn't have her listening ear anymore, Bobby lent his. When Caroline and John Jr. lost their dad, daddy's brother was always around to wrestle and take the boat out. But when Bobby was ripped from them, the void was just too great for little Teddy to fill. Some of the things he was glad to do. They couldn't keep him away. Jackie even asked him to be the kid's godfather in Bobby's place because he was around so much and was so good with them. But mostly, it was like a black hole had been punched through the family's solar system. And when everything should have still been orbiting, it was all sliding backward and Teddy couldn't hold it all back. The pressure was just too much. So, in order to relieve some of it, he clung to his old friend, self-sabotage. There were a lot of people that assumed that after Bobby was killed, Ted would be the obvious new president-elect. When Joe Jr. couldn't, Jack did. When Jack couldn't, Bobby stepped up. Next in line, Ted. It was looming, this expectation, staring him in the face, never looking away, never backing down. On July 19th, 1969, Joan's world changed again. This time, it was the final nail in the coffin she'd already been living in. There's been an accident, Ted's voice said from the other end. He sounded strained and quivery, like he was crying. Oh no, Ted. What now? What came next? What now? Was a bomb dropped straight into her bedroom. The truth that exploded all over her life. What came next was the death of everything. A girl drowned Jonesy, and there was nothing I could do. I swear it. On July 18th, Friday, the day before the phone call, Ted went to Boston. Joey Gargan and a few of the other Kennedy entourage guys were throwing a party for the Boiler Room girls. They were the girls that had done the most rigorous work on Bobby's presidential campaign. The countless hours they spent toiling away, well, that was the boiler room. So who all was coming to the party? Six single girls and five married men. The party was at a rented house on Chappaquiddick Island in Cape Cod. The only way to get there was a ferry that would just take a couple of minutes to get your car across the water each way. The story is that Ted was at the party. He'd just had a few drinks. Around 11 p.m., he wanted to go back to his hotel. The ferry only ran until midnight. Ted said that Mary Jo Kopechny wanted to turn in as well, 
so he was going to give her a ride to the ferry so she could get back across and to her hotel. The night was pitch black. He turned down the wrong street, didn't realize it was a bridge, and drove straight off the side and head first into the water. Ted was able to climb out of the car and swim to safety. Mary Jo was not. Ted dove back into the water several times to attempt saving Mary Jo, but was unsuccessful. After realizing he would not be able to rescue her himself, Ted walked back to the party and asked to talk to Joey Gargan and his chauffeur, John Crimmins. Instead of calling the police immediately, he told them that there had been an accident and took them back to the bridge. He showed them the car, where they then proceeded to try to save her themselves, unsuccessfully. Did they then call the police? No. Joey and John went back to the party tried to act as if nothing happened as not to alert the other party attendees, and went to sleep. They were under the impression that Ted was going to swim across the channel and walk to the police station, report the accident, and Mary Jo's death. This did not happen. It was not until the next morning, after sleeping, almost 10 hours after the accident occurred, that Ted finally walked into the Edgartown Police Department to report the crash. Obviously, this leaves about a million questions unanswered, and conflicting police reports raise more. But we'll talk about that next week in our 21st Kennedy Family Meeting. Interestingly, shockingly, that phone call to Joan was not the first call Ted made when he got home. The first call Ted made was to Jackie. That's when she heard about the tragedy and said she would be on a plane as soon as possible. Ted got pretty close to Jackie and even Ethel after Bobby died. There was no other brother left, so... Ted put a lot of effort in. He was a father figure in their kids' lives and kept his brother's presence as strong as possible for them. But it still doesn't make any sense that he would want to talk to his sister-in-law before his wife. Neither was Joan Ted's second call. Please tell me it was at least a lawyer. Next, Ted called Helga. Who is Helga? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) She was a woman that Ted had dated on or off for years, and apparently, at this very moment, they were on. She asked if she should come to Hyannisport to be with him, and thankfully, little Teddy still had an ounce of respect for his family and told her she better not. I think it's not right. (laughs) Because I think it's not right. (laughs) Because you're not a Kennedy, so I think it's not right. (laughs) Because you're not a Kennedy, so I think it's not right for you to be here. (laughs) 
Then Tad called Joan and dropped the bomb in her bedroom. <clears throat> this happened quite often to Joan. Most times, she found out what Ted was going to do in his career from other family members or from the media. He never consulted her as Jack and Bobby had with their wives. Most of the time, he didn't even bother to tell her what he was doing. Quote, I believe Ted has an unconscious drive to self-destruct. I think it comes from the fact that he knows he'll never live up to what people expect of him. He's not Jack. He's not Bobby. And he believes that what he is, is just not enough. Jackie Kennedy Onassis. Wow, that's the first time we've used that name. If the Kennedys had been a poor family, and Teddy had been asked to wear his brother's clothes, he would have been unable to pour his outsized frame into Jack's or Bobby's pants or shirts. It was his brother's lives that he was being asked to don, and he was having a difficult time even walking in the costuming of their lives. They were at the helm during the most turbulent moment in American history. The rumors are legion, some sincere, some slander. They gave everything to their country. But what did it look like behind closed doors, in their homes, the most intimate moments of their time on Earth? Sometimes the truth is more wild than the headlines. They seemed to live the easy life, but they lost it all in an instant. They ran faster, worked harder, burned brighter, and then they were gone. You have just listened to The Kennedy Siblings, episode 21 from Blood and Business. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please give us a review on Apple, rate us on Spotify, and share Blood and Business with a friend or a sibling. If you'd like to support the show, the best way is to become a patron of Blood and Business. You will get bonus content every month, including a monthly bonus episode, interactive main episodes, and behind-the-scenes footage. To keep up with us day-to-day, you can follow us at Blood and Business on Instagram and TikTok. You can find the link for Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon in the show notes below. Thank you so much for the support, and we will see you back here next week for your regularly scheduled programming on Blood and Business. The main source for this episode was The Kennedy Women by Lawrence Lemer, Jackie, Ethel, and Joan by J. Randy Terraborelli, and Chappaquiddick by Leo Damore. To see a complete list of sources for all Blood and Business episodes, head on over to Patreon for a free PDF download. That is just insane. Swim? Did you say swim? Swim. <laughs> These dudes are like, all right, you do that. Mm-hmm. After you've We're just gonna suffered go to this traumatic event, watched a girl yeah. drown to death, you go swim across the channel. To report to the police by yourself. And we'll We're going to go sleep. with the other four, five married single girls. Mm-hmm. Yep.
Oh, we, we told him, we tried to tell him, you have to report it. You have to report it. You have to report it. I saw it 15 times. So you just went to see with the other single girls when you're married and called it a day. Your conscience was just completely clean. <laughs> 